Guys, thanks for, thanks for being here. Two services is sweet. We're, start inviting people. There's more room. Keep them coming, all right? So here's the deal. We're in Acts 12. We're going to jump right in this morning. Uh, if you've got your Bible, flip open there. I love it when you guys follow along. I want you to see the scriptures as we're going through them. Uh, the scriptures are your authority. And so we want you looking at the word of God when you're here, if at all possible. If you're newer to that, you can download a Bible app on your phone. It's free. It's called YouVersion. You can download that and kind of follow along if you'd like. We'll have it on the screens as well. But Acts 12, let me start out by just reading you uh, the first few verses here. So Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, so here's the situation. The church has been doing great. It's expanding into the world. There's people coming to Christ. There's Gentiles coming in that people never thought could be a part of this movement. But there's a major setback here in chapter 12. It reminds me a little bit of like when Stephen was martyred. It, and, and if you were reading this story for the first time, right, if you weren't familiar with the book of Acts or the story of the gospel, if you were just reading this like a book, you would come upon this and you would think that this little movement of Christians is about to die, that, that this is game over and here's why, because James, one of the prominent leaders, has just been killed by Herod for no other reason than to score political brownie points with the Jews. The Jews liked the fact that he was taking out Christians, and so he was just doing it. And then he arrested Peter, and when it says, after the day of unleavened bread, he was about to bring him out to the people, what that means is, is he's about to put him on trial which was just like a sketchy, fake trial that he knew the Jews would condemn him to death. And so Peter is waiting for his inevitable death. The leader of the church is about to die. So things are not looking good. And so here's what we have. The ultimate underdog story. Everybody loves a good underdog story, right? That's why we don't like Tom Brady. I feel like that's fairly easy to assume. There's maybe one person in here who does, but the rest of us are like, let's go. Can we move on? Because we like the underdog, not the person that always wins, right? So what you have here is this tiny little band of Christians meeting together and the Roman Empire, right? Like, like the greatest force at that time in history and really at any time in history, one of the, the most remarkable forces, you've got this little Christian kingdom against the Roman Empire. And what we've got today is a story of like the little kingdom that could, you know, like the kingdom that just like, it just keeps going. Against all odds, despite like persecution, oppression, despite things looking bleak and like looking like they're hopeless, the kingdom just keeps going. And there's characteristics of people who are in a kingdom like that that we're going to see. So here are the characteristics of people in that like little underdog kingdom. First, relentless hope. Second, supernatural dependence. Third, urgent prayer. Relentless hope, supernatural dependence urgent prayer. So let's start with relentless hope. So you can see hope all throughout this text. Where I'm going to get it from the text that I just read is verse 5. It says this, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God's church. So everything looks bleak. It looks like they have no chance to get Peter out, but the church is praying. Why? Because they still have hope. 
They still believe, right? Which the second that I, I read that, I, of course, started thinking about Toy Story 3. It makes sense, right? You guys have all seen Toy Story 3. You, you know this, right? If you haven't, let's go. You, I don't care how old it is, go back and watch yourself some Toy Story 3. So if you've seen this, you know what I'm talking about when I say the word incinerator. Remember the incinerator scene? Yeah, exactly. It's when all of our hearts like started to get crushed. So this is what happened. Woody and Buzz and the whole gang, they end up in this trash incinerator. I don't really remember how they got there, but they're in there and it's like this giant room that's just funneling down and they're in this garbage and they're getting funneled down to this huge flame in the center, this incinerator, right? And so they're they're freaking out and like, you're just thinking, oh, like they always get out of this stuff. It's going to be fine. And, and so they're trying to get out, but then they're just sliding closer and closer. And then you're starting to go, uh-oh. And they're getting closer and closer to the flame until eventually they figure out that they can't get out. And then there's this moment where Buzz reaches out for Woody's hand. And Woody grabs Buzz's hand and they turn towards the flame and they accept their fate, that they're going to die. And that's when I panicked. Because my childhood is deeply wrapped up into the story of Toy Story 3. There is nostalgia and memories attached to this. And they can't die and I'm freaking out because I think it's finally going to happen. They're finally going to die, right? And they're moving towards the incinerator. And did I tear up? Maybe. Grown man crying at Toy Story 3. And I'm trying to, you know, hide that from people around me, whatever. But so they're about to hit the incinerator. And then what happens? The claw right? This, the claw comes in and it drops down from above and it scoops them up and it rescues them. Now, pretty much every good story you know is something like that, where it just looks like things are hopeless, that there's no way out, that things can't get worse, and then suddenly something comes in and it rescues them. What if there's a reason that we like stories like that? What if stories like that are actually a reflection of the story, the story of the world, the Christian story, which I never thought I was going to compare the gospel to Toy Story 3, but here we go. This is the story of Christianity, is that we're sliding towards the flames, that we're caught up in this muck of selfishness and, and sin and, and suffering and pain, and this world isn't supposed to be what it is, and we're scrambling to get out of it. But we find out that there's nothing we can do to pull ourselves out. We're just, the more we try, the more we strive, the closer we get to the incinerator. And when it looks like there's absolutely no hope, absolutely no way out, God drops in from above, and he rescues us. And there's nothing that we do to create that. We can't get ourselves out, but God comes in and he pulls us out to safety. But here's the deal. If you've been rescued by Jesus like that, you are eternally secure and you can rest at peace, but you're not immediately removed out of this world, which means that you're still in there with everybody else and you're, you're working through the same pain and the same suffering and the same apparent meaninglessness and the same apparent hopelessness as everyone else is. And everybody else around you is sort of panicking and trying to, to, to get out of it and create this life for themselves. And this is what the Christian does, is the little kingdom, we turn and we hold hands together and we just sit and we wait at peace. Not because we've accepted our fate, but because we believe that God will supernaturally intervene and rescue us. And every time you encounter something apparently hopeless in your life, every time you're suffering, you're going through chronic illness, there's death in your family, or more like, 
like easier things, but that are actually really hard. Your job feels hopeless. You don't really know what the meaning of your life is. You feel distant from God. Anything you're, anytime you're going through something like that, you have an opportunity to proclaim to the world what's true, that what looks hopeless actually isn't, that you still have hope because King Jesus is on the throne and he can enter in and rescue you. So are you anxious are you restless? Are you nervous? Are you striving? Those things are like a little check engine light in your soul. And they're telling you that something is wrong. That you need to believe again this story of the gospel and take hope. Okay. Relentless hope. Second, supernatural dependence. So let me read to you a little bit more of this story I'm going to start in verse 6, and I want you to notice how Luke, the author of this book, inserts in here little, um, little pointers to the fact that this is a supernatural work of God. So some of the commentators that I read about this are like, well, maybe Peter escapes because he like paid off the guards or something like that. He like worked it out. No, no, Luke is intentionally inserting details in here so that you know that this is just a supernatural work of God out of nowhere. So pay attention to those. Let me start in verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Okay, real quick, that's uncommon. So typically what would happen to a prisoner is they would be chained, not just their hands together, but they would have their hands chained to a guard, which was enough to keep them in prison. That's like hard to get out of, but what do they do with Peter? They chain him to two guards and then they put two more by the door. They're very invested in him not getting out. And Luke is telling us there's no way Peter could get out on his own. Okay, verse seven. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. So an angel just shows up in the middle of prison and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. I love that. The angel's like kicking Peter, like wake up, dude. Okay, so he strikes Peter on the side and he says, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. Okay, catch that. Peter literally gets broken out of prison and he thinks it's a dream the whole time. Like Peter does not even know that he's not sleeping until he gets outside. Okay, verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them, notice, of its own accord. And they went out and went along on, on the street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he like wakes up and he's like, oh my gosh, that just happened. He said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So what you have here is this miraculous work of God where a guy in prison who has no hope to get out is supernaturally rescued by an angel even though he had nothing to do with it, like was sleeping and finds himself outside. Question, do you actually believe that happened? Like, like not in the like, oh, this is a Bible story. We like Bible stories. Yeah, that's cool. No, no, Like that he actually was in prison and then an angel showed up and actually took him out of prison. Or, or what about now? Do you believe that something like that could happen in the world right now? Like, do you think that a miracle could happen today in your life or in somebody's life that you know? Here's the deal. Texts like this are hard for us. I struggle with it as I'm preparing to teach it. 
Here's why, is because when we read a story like this, we bring with it all of these cultural and individual assumptions that we have. So there's no such thing as showing up to a text neutral. You come with all of this background that you've been sort of immersed in since you were a kid, and here is the background that you've been immersed in your entire life, Western modern naturalism. Whether or not you ascribe to that point of view, you've been deeply influenced by it, so you're suspicious of anything like this because you've been told that everything must have a like normal or natural explanation. Let me give you a quick definition of naturalism so we agree with what we're talking about here. Naturalism is the philosophical belief that everything arises from natural properties and causes, and supernatural or spiritual explanations are excluded or discounted. So that's what we bring to the text. So when we have stories like this, we either really struggle to believe them or we're kind of embarrassed by them. You don't really want to tell this story to your unbelieving friend because you'll think that they'll think you're crazy. Okay, but this is what I want to tell you is it is absolutely not illogical to believe in miracles. You do not have to abandon your reason to believe in miracles. In fact, it's totally logically consistent. Okay, so if you don't start from the assumption of unbelief, okay, if, if the question is whether naturalism is true or not, if you put that aside to figure out whether it's true instead of just automatically assuming it, what you're going to find out is it's actually very logical to believe in miracles. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say that I'm a painter, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint a painting, and you guys are going to be the characters in that painting, okay? So you're like sort of cognizant and aware in this hypothetical scenario. So I paint you into a painting, I paint your friend into the painting, and say I paint a sunrise, okay? Very simple painting. Now, because you're the, the, the one being painted, that's the entire world that you know. You know, like you see your hands, you see your friends, you see the sunrise. That's all you know about the world, but I, as the painter, know a lot more, right? And so let's say that I decide that I'm going to paint a house into this picture. And so I start painting a house. From your perspective, this is what's happening, is there's like doors and beams and walls just popping up out of nowhere, and you don't even know what a door is, because you've never seen a door before in your life. So there's this weird thing that just kind of pops up on you, and you're freaked out, and you're like, what is that? From my perspective, like, this is totally normal. I'm just painting a house the same way I painted you. Like, this is just like a normal Tuesday, right? So this is what I'm saying. If you step out of your limited perspective and you step back to the truth about who God is, you will see that this is entirely possible for him to do something like this. It's perfectly logical for the God who created the world to intervene in it. And that's what a miracle is. Does he do that all the time? No, he set up the world to function naturally, and, and he's all for that, but at times he will supernaturally intervene. So it's our job as Christians to have a supernatural view of the world. Or another way to say that is, as Christians, we need to stop questioning the Bible and its assumptions and start letting the Bible question us and our assumptions. You are not the authority over the word of God. You don't get to let the Bible sort of try and prove itself to you. The word of God is your authority and you submit your assumptions to it because it's telling you what's real and true about the world, whether or not it feels like that. So what would that look like to put on a supernatural worldview, an understanding of the supernatural in this world? There's so many places we can go with this. 
I'm not going to unpack very many of them. I just want to give you a couple. One, you would actually pray for miracles. Like when's the last time that you prayed for something supernatural to happen in your life or in someone else's life? Like, look, this is hard for me. I don't know what the answer to that question is in my life because I'm afraid that I'm going to pray something big and that God's not really going to come through, right? Which he always comes through, but it's hard for me to believe that in the moment, especially when my reputation is on the line, like if I'm praying that in front of other people. If you believe that God is actually who he says he is, you should ask him to do miraculous things in the world. And I think we're kind of nervous about that, not only culturally, but as kind of a Christian subculture, as a church body, because we've seen this abused. We've seen people kind of claiming, like, thus saith the Lord, and kind of act like they're the ones that are speaking on God's behalf, or people that are pursuing these kind of crazy experiences just for the sake of experience. I'm not talking about that, but I'm saying we've swung the pendulum so far to the other perspective that we don't actually look that different from anybody else in the world. Pray for supernatural things to happen, which I'm going to talk about that in a second. Second, pursue a subjective hard to explain connection with God through his spirit. Pursue a subjective, hard to explain connection with God through his spirit. Here's the deal. We don't like the word subjective very much because subjective to us feels like, well, that may or may not be true. Like, how do I, how do I verify that? But, but this is what I'm saying. The danger in that, again, is swinging too far the opposite direction where you're building this little like box that you want to put God in. And you're super sort of rigid and like dogmatic of like, this is the very specific way that God functions and you don't have any sort of dynamic personal relationship with him. I could not explain to you all of the intricacies of my relationship with my wife because we have this like relational thing happening, this back and forth that nobody else fully experiences or understands. Do you have that same thing with God? Because this is what's true of God, is the mysterious, sort of dynamic, at times unpredictable God of the universe, who is spirit, lives inside of you. And you're supposed to have a relationship with him. So do you have those moments through the day where you just get this sense, like God wants me to do something, I should, I should pray for that person, or I should go do this thing that I don't totally understand, but you know what, I'm going I'm to take a step in faith. Do you have those interactions with him? Because if you don't, you're probably missing some components about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to have intimacy with God, pursue those things. Okay, next thing. People who are part of this little underdog kingdom, they urgently pray. They urgently pray. Let me read verse 12. When he realized this, so this is, this is Peter, he's realizing that he's free. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So the church had gathered together to pray for this exact thing to happen, that a miracle would happen and Peter would be set free. And the rest of the story is, is just so funny. Peter starts knocking on the door and there's this like servant girl that comes down because the church is too scared to come down because they think that it's the police because who else is knocking on their door in the middle of the night? And the servant girl comes down and she hears Peter's voice over a wall and she forgets to open the door for him and just runs back upstairs. And Peter's chilling outside the gate thinking, uh, there's some guards coming for me. Can you guys let me in? And he's standing outside and then the church doesn't really believe that this miracle could happen even though they just prayed for it. And, and so they're not really believing the servant girl. Finally, they come down, they let Peter in. Peter has to tell him to be quiet because there's like such a commotion that he thinks that they're gonna get caught. 
And he tells them the story of this miraculous escape. But I think there's some things we can learn from the way that they prayed. So the first one, they prayed corporately. They weren't just individual Christians praying in their individual houses. They gathered together to pray. Okay, we need to fight back on our cultural hyper-individualism. So it is both good to pray individually and to pray corporately. But which one of those is more natural for you? To pray individually. And that's a great thing, but we need to pursue corporate prayer together. Some of the best prayer times of my life was when I just had a standing appointment with one of my best friends literally just to pray. It was all we would do. And it was awesome. And I don't really know why I stopped doing that. In, in your connection groups, are you praying as like a transition? Or are you praying because it's like substantive, like it's a part of your group? Like actually take time to pray together as a group. Okay, so they prayed corporately. They prayed urgently. Again, what time is it that they gathered together to pray? It's the middle of the night. So if I call you tonight at midnight and I'm like, hey, you want to go pray at midpoint? You guys down? <laughs> You're like, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Everybody else is like, no. I wouldn't be in. If you call me at midnight, I'm like, stop calling. I'm actually not even going to answer the phone. Like, just don't do that, right? That's, that's commitment. So if you're going to get up in the middle of the night to pray, you have to realize the urgency of what's happening. That this isn't just like something you're kind of throwing in your life every once in a while. This is your lifeline. And they're urgent because they are experiencing their utter dependence on God. They're desperate because of the situation they're in. Turns out we're desperate for God's presence all the time. It's just whether we realize it or not. Are you desperate for the presence of God and urgently praying as a result. So I heard this, this quote a while back from Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the greatest preachers who's ever lived. And they asked him, hey, what's the secret to the power of your preaching? And what he didn't say was the preparation that he put in. He didn't say sort of the, the vision and the mission of their church. This is what he said. He said, prayer. And he meant something specific by prayer. He actually didn't mean his own personal prayer. He said, it's the 100 people in the basement praying for me. So apparently, during this movement, at their gatherings, there would be 100 people in the basement of their church just praying for the gathering that was happening above. Praying that people would come to know Jesus, that the word of God would be powerfully proclaimed. And Spurgeon credits what happened there to that group of people that were committed to prayer. When I read that, I was like, sweet, we should do that for Salt Company, our college ministry that I oversee. Like, I should invite people to literally do nothing else but just show up on Thursday nights to pray for what's happening in the other room. And I never did that because it's illogical, right? Like, you can pray just as well from your house as, like, you can showing up at a location. It's kind of a big ask. Like, are people going to travel in a city on Thursday nights to, like, just come pray. It, it, it just felt like something that you can't really ask people to do. And this week as I was prepping, I, the Holy Spirit like brought that back to mind. And it was just one of those like, oh, he got me with that. And so I'm throwing it out there. If any of you would like to show up on Thursday nights uh, at Salt Company at 8 p.m. to just pray for what's going on with the students, we'd love to have you. So I'm not going to organize it. I'm not going to do anything. Literally, if you just want to show up to pray, you can. Um, 
And there's a few other people that will be coming. I don't know how often or how it's going to work, nothing like that. But if you just want to pray, we'd love to have you. Okay. Next one, they prayed hopefully. And, and by the way, if you want to do that, if you want to pray, come talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. Okay, they prayed hopefully. So there's a lot of reasons to pray. One of them is that, that you kind of get to be with God and you get to have relationship with him. One is that he starts to conform your heart like into his image and in, into his desires. Here's the main reason, because it works. Like, I, I know that's simple. Do you actually believe that? That prayer works. Like when you pray, things change. And you're like, Jordan, but theologically, like God's in control of things. He's the one acting and blah, blah. Yeah, I know. Like, but when I read the Bible, when people pray, stuff changes. Do I know how that works in the character of God? No. But I just know that it happens. That God moves in the world when his people ask him to pray. Are you praying like that? Guys, like, when I, when I watched that, that video of the SALT conference, I, like, I still, I mean, I've seen it five, six times. I still get goosebumps every time, largely because it's just a really great video, and spoken word is great, but because when I'm seeing, like, the faces of people from SALT Company up here, I have, like, these memories of before we came up here. Like, I remember taking perspectives, which is about God's heart for the world, and their big thing was, like, put your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. And, and what they meant by that was, like, pretty much all of you should go overseas, which I don't think is true, but I do think some of us should. And so I had this moment where I was like, this might, like, in a lot of practical ways ruin my life, but I believe that Jesus is calling me to be a part of something bigger than me, and I want my life to matter, and I'm screwed up, and I'm not the most gifted and all this stuff, but I want it to count for something. Like, I just, I want people to go to heaven because I've been alive, and, and I just prayed and I said, okay, like, I don't know what this means. I'm freaked out by this, but Jesus, my yes is on the table. Like, put it on the map. Do whatever you want with my life. And he put it on the map here. And I've gotten to see him do, like, ridiculous stuff here. And I get to dream about him continuing to do ridiculous things. Like, the day that I think we can see where there's a conference that size that we were just at in Des Moines just in this city because there's enough college students here of seeing what he would do, not just in our college ministry, but in our church. And, I'm, and I get to be a part of that. And I'm seeing faces of, of people from Minneapolis that, that know Jesus and, and that I never would have gotten to meet and, and, and that wouldn't have been able to be a part of what God's doing in this world. And, and I just prayed and, and Jesus answered that. And I'm not like taking credit for that, but in like a small sense, I kind of am because I think prayer is actually like that, that when you pray, God moves and he, he brings you into what you're praying for. Are you praying for our city? Are you praying for something bigger than you? Like, we can't afford to not have you pray. Like, we have an enemy who's pushing darkness on this place and wants people to be hopeless, and we got to push back that darkness. And the primary way, way that we do that is prayer. Some of the people, like roughly my age, a little bit younger, college students, I want to challenge you. You guys are great at seeing injustice in the world and calling it out, and you should keep doing that. Let me ask you, though, are you willing to pray for years against that injustice? When you don't know what to do, are you willing to just give time to asking God to do it, even if it doesn't seem that productive, even if you don't get to be the highlight of it? Are you willing? That's something that I've seen in the older generation that I, I want in my life is this willingness to just pray for years at a time. Like this church was built on the prayers of people 40 years ago. Are you willing to be that person right now? 
And I'm so torn when I talk about this and I'm passionate about it, both because of what I think prayer can do, but also because I'm frustrated by the sin in my life in this area. I'm frustrated by my own prayerlessness, which I think is, is the biggest expression of pride in my life. I can be a proud man. I think that one of the ways I'm most proud is by not praying, because that's essentially me telling God, hey, I've got this. I don't really need you. And I don't want to be like that. And not only is it proud, but it's just stupid. This is just like prayerlessness is the height of my stupidity because I have access to the king of the universe who wants to answer my prayers and I don't take him up on it. Imagine that you personally knew the president of the United States. Okay, so I'm not, forget about what you think about Trump, okay? I don't care about that right now. So, but just say that you personally knew the most powerful person in the world and that that person looked at you and said, hey, like, you've got my ear anytime you want it. I'll do whatever you need. Any way that I can help you, you let me know. You would be crazy to not take him up on that, right? This is God. God is saying, hey, I want you to take me up on this. You've got my ear. I would love to answer your prayers. Will he answer it the way that you want him to all the time? No, but will he listen? Yes. Take him up on it. That's crazy. So here's the deal. To close this out, this is how the, the story ends, is you get a little picture of, of Herod's death. And this is why I think the story ends that way, is because verse 24 is kind of summarizing. It says, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So here's where we were at the beginning of the story. At the beginning of the story, Herod has already killed one of the prominent leaders in the church, and he's imprisoned another one, and it looks like he and the Roman Empire are winning. And then by the end of the story, Herod is dead, and Peter is not only alive, but he's free. Because Jesus is on the throne. And even when it looked helpless, Jesus came through for his church. And this whole story is like a microcosm of what salvation is. So Peter was in prison. He was shackled and without hope, awaiting certain death. That's what you were. Before you knew Christ, and some of you don't know Christ now, he's not the Lord of your life, so this is true of you now. You were shackled. You were in prison. You were, you were enslaved to your own desires and to your own sin, and you were without hope. You were in that, that incinerator moving towards the flames and there was nothing that you could do out of it until God set you free, supernaturally rescued you from above. And, and how much did Peter have to do with this? He was sleeping. He had literally nothing to do with it. God just did it. You had nothing to do with your own salvation, but God saw fit that you would know him and that you would be set free. That's what salvation is. And this is what I'm saying, is that that changes the way that you live. You now can live with hope. You used to be hopeless. Now you can live with hope because you're free. And the kingdom, and you're freed not just from something, but into something. The kingdom keeps going. It will never stop. It will never end. And the majority of your life is just sitting there and waiting and believing that God, against all hope, will continue his kingdom plan moving forward. And so you just hold on to hope. You're dependent on the supernatural. You pray for help and you trust him because you know the end of the story. How can you have hope? Because you know how this thing ends. It doesn't end 
with Jesus dethroned and you dead, it ends with him proclaiming himself as the king of the universe. Jesus wins and he brings you into that victory and when you know the end of the story, you can live differently now. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks that that's true. That you don't leave us in our darkness, in our sin, in our shame, in our slavery to our own desires, but you you set us free. You set us free into this little kingdom that keeps looking like it's going to get stuffed out, but over and over again through history, it just keeps going. And we want to be a part of that here. We want to pray for you to do amazing things in this city. We want your kingdom to come here and use us and allow us to be a part of it. Thanks for pulling us into your kingdom and then letting us be a part of it. That's a cool privilege. And we love you, Jesus. Amen.